Great men of contemporary music. The group features Dave Liebman on the saxophones, Peter Cozy on the guitar, Reginald Lucas on the guitar, Mike Henderson on the bass, Al Foster on the drums, Mtumi on percussion, and of course the leader of the group on the trumpet, Miles Davis. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
As you might have figured, we are listening to a live recording, and you're listening to WKCR. My name is Mitch Goldman. Jazz Alternatives is the program heard each weeknight from 6 to 9 p.m. Tonight, we are taking a deep focus, what we call this program. We get live recordings from the WKCR archives, and we have a special guest to explore them with us. And I'm very, very happy to welcome back to the show Graham Haynes. And, uh, Graham, what have we been listening to? We've been listening to Miles Davis from Shinjuku, Tokyo. This, I think this was actually... we. Well, we no, this is Berlin. I'm sorry. We, this is Berlin. Berlin. We've got some Berlin. gems Berlin. for you guys. Okay. From, from Berlin, um, November 1st, yeah. 1973. Dave Liebman, Pete Cozy, Dave Liebman, soprano, tenor, and flute. Pete Cozy, guitar. Reggie Lucas, guitar. Michael Henderson, bass. Al Foster, drums. And M. Tume on percussion. James M. Tume, foreman, as it says here. Yeah. yeah. Now, this, uh, this is something we've been planning for a long time, for yep. months. And you selected this particular period of Miles Davis, and I was very happy to... Uh, go down this road with you. But I know you had your own reasons, things that you were thinking about. Well, okay, let me first say I'm very happy to be here. And let me say welcome. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I said that. Thank you. Um, I chose this period because this is probably my favorite band. Um, this period of, of Miles Davis's career, between 73, actually between 72 and 75, you know, because there were, some of these sidemen were playing with him as early as 72, I think. And then the band stayed together for the most part till 75. Um, this and, is, at, at which point Miles which, stopped performing at for which a point number Miles of years, six years. put the horn in a case and didn't touch it for another five years. So, um, yeah, he start playing and uh when he came back he assembled something different it was something else so this period between 73 and 75 is one of my favorite periods one of my favorite bands and i got to see this band play a number of times uh in new york once in boston and um you know, Miles would Miles always said that the music should speak. You know, let the music speak for itself. And um, if you let this music speak, you know, there really is nothing else that you have to say about it. You know, <laughs> where does that leave us? <laughs> where does that leave us? I mean, I would be content with just playing the stuff and listening to it. However, however, you know, <laughs> however, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, you know, I have a few points and things that I want to say and reminiscences that I, reminiscences that I will talk about. But um, well, let me say that big a big part of this show is you. I mean, we're playing Miles Davis's music, and we're exploring, I think, a underappreciated part of his vast 
discography. Yes, and I and I have there's a reason for the underappreciation uh-huh. underappreciation of it. Well, I we got I believe we got we're going to unpack as much out of this as we can, but uh, uh, this is also you know this is a chance to see you in another light and hear you talk about your passions and and that is that's a big part of what this show is. So there's no uh, there's no disgrace in uh, talking talking about the music and it's something you have some knowledge and opinions about so that's that's why we're here and uh any uh maybe give us some thoughts and impressions about that piece we just heard okay well i don't there's no um okay there there is a a a track list here and um okay there was the introduction and then something that says here turn around phrase and then tune in five and then Ife, and uh, I guess we stopped at Ife. That's like 13 minutes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, these tunes, okay, we, we're gonna play, we are playing material from uh, 1973 to 75. Um, as I said, this was November 1st, 73 in Berlin. And but we have a couple of things that are earlier than that. But I just chose to start with this because I like the intensity of it. And this is a little later after the other pieces that we'll play from 73. But um, it is it, it, it really is intense. And it's all the more striking to me knowing this was part of a big festival. This is this big uh, jazz days festival in Berlin. Mm. And this is in the Philharmonia in Berlin, which was this this big very proper acoustically perfect concert hall yeah and you know they're they are bringing what they're bringing and we have among the things that we dug up and preparing for this show this list of the places that this band would play right to people that don't know because then the audience i'm sitting here with miles davis's tour schedule from 19 from october 27 1971 until Actually, until March 7, 1978. But uh, uh, those are studio. Oh, those, yeah. No, those yeah, are studio. He did do gigs. a few studio things in those dark years. But, um, you know, there's a big range of places that he played. This was certainly not the only concert hall. And in fact, in Europe, he was playing a lot of concert halls. And uh, But he was also doing rock joints he was doing nightclubs. He was, you know, they were. Yeah, well, let me let me just go, go, go uh, to. Uh, my viewing of this band. Please. I first saw this band, I believe it was 1973 or 74. I'm not exactly sure. It was in the wintertime, and it was at Paul's Mall in Boston. Uh, My mom, I was in Boston. My father's, my dad's from Boston. And we were in Boston for a family celebration of, uh, I believe it was my grandmother's birthday. And... My mom knew that I loved Miles, so she took me to this concert at Paul's Mall. Now, Paul's Mall, there were three nightclubs that were back-to-back next to each other. It was Paul's Mall, the Jazz Workshop, and the third one, which name I can't remember. But she took me down to Paul's Mall to see Miles, and this was the band. It was Cozy, Michael Henderson, Al Foster, Reggie Lucas and uh, and Liebman and Miles 
And uh, my mother goes back to 52nd Street days. She was uh, a permanent fixture on 52nd Street back in the 1940s. Um, And there were a lot of people playing up and down 52nd Street. Now, we don't have to go into all that. But she knew Miles from that era. Okay, so here we are in 1973, 74 at Paul's Mall with this band. And uh, the band sounded pretty much like what we just listened to. So there are a bunch of young kids in the audience and some some people that followed Miles from his career from the beginning. But, you know, my mother was totally into the music and she she was really, really into it and I was really into it, but I was young, I was 13 or something. So the end of the concert, she introduces me to Miles. And uh, the thing that was kind of intriguing to me was he didn't believe that she was, she liked the concert. <laughs> and uh, she kept saying that how incredible it was. She thought the band was fantastic and it was amazing and she'd never heard anything. And it was like she, she was yelling and screaming and rocking back and forth and dancing in the chair and blah, blah, blah. And he was really kind of into this, you know, because I, I had the feeling that most of the people from those 52nd Street days and in between totally dropped the ball with this. They thought Miles lost his mind. They thought he couldn't play anymore. The phrase the, selling out was they what thought was he thrown around out. at that time. Yeah, and other such things. So that was my first experience seeing this band. You know. That did she did he actually disbelieve her enthusiasm or was he just, Yeah, he didn't he didn't. He actually thought she was just kind of fronting for him and Yeah, he he and you know, she told him so many words that, you know, I really I really dug it. Yeah. And uh what and I got to hear what other impressions and things he might have said and did he say anything lock into you at all well you know my mom my mom used to tell me yeah you should go meet miles they'll probably give you a horn you know (laughs) (laughs) of course i wanted to meet him because of that (laughs) so um you know so she introduced me to him and then he looked at me he said where's your corn so i didn't have a corn you know i was just starting to play you know so i remember from that day you should explain for listeners for listeners what a corn is a corn is the callus that trumpet players would have on the upper part of their lip, you know, and, uh, you know, particularly old tr- tr- trumpet players from Miles' generation and before would have a very crom- prominent scar. If you look at Louis Armstrong's lip, it's like, pro- it's very prominent. You know, as we move on into the 70s, 80s, 90s, trumpet players learn techniques that they didn't have to match the mouthpiece up into their mouth. So you don't have that. You, if you look at younger trumpet players, they don't have that same cut. Plus the technology changes, microphones, all that stuff, amplification changed everything. So Miles had a deep one, you know, and Dizzy had one and so did, you know, a lot of those trumpet players. And uh, so I remember trying to to mash the mouthpiece into my lip so it would make a scar, 
And uh, I remember the next time I saw him, I wanted to tell him, see, I got it now. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but I was, um, the music, it was, was, uh, the music for me was a kind of baptism by fire. You know, it was my first time hearing the band. It was my first time hearing anything like that. I remember what my friends were listening to at that time. I remember what most jazz sounded like at that time. And there was some pretty far, like, you know, I remember I remember going to the jazz workshop and seeing Sun Ra and seeing um, Ra and Roland Kirk play next door at Paul's Mall and going back and forth between the two places. So I was used to some pretty, you know, some pretty open, far out stuff, but this was some this was something else. It was a total package. It was like a total there was no regard for um any kind of compromise or anything. It was like this is what this man wants to do and he's gonna do it and it doesn't matter what he did before. It doesn't matter if people say that he sold out. It doesn't matter if people say it's too loud. It doesn't you know, this is what I'm doing and that's it. You know, and um my feeling was never that he sold out. I always felt like if Miles wanted to sell out, then he would have done some really pre-produced music and made songs that were three minutes long for the radio. And, you know, they would have been nice and clean. And, you know, I never got the sense Miles was trying to sell out with this. But, it's, you it's know, almost... I, for the rest of my life, I was trying to figure out how he got to this point, you know. And now, then I'm I had curious. to go back. Um for you, as a 13-year-old, everything that you just said, I, I get. And um, But I'm wondering how clear that was to you at that age. Did you, did you absorb all of that, or were you, was there just something that drew you in and you had to figure all that stuff out along the way later? Or what was your impression at the time? Well, I, I just totally—I I was— Uh, My impression was I knew, like a lot of people, I knew Miles Davis of old, and I was trying to figure out how he got to this point. You know, what was it that that brought him to where he was? And you know, uh, the the music was it it was shocking for me, but I totally dug it. You know, so um, I. I went back and had to do a lot of research. You know, I wanted to listen to all the music before. And as a kid, we had, I remember, we had it home in a silent way. And that was the latest Miles that we had on record at that time. So I would listen to that over and over, and i said, wait a minute. There's this, and there's what I heard at this club, you know. And not that much time had passed, really. No, no. A couple, a few years. No, no, yeah. Not, this is, uh, but the evolution of what Miles years, do, yeah. was doing and his thinking was obviously yeah. a lot faster. Yeah. So I had to go back and research all the stuff in between and also the stuff previous to In a Silent Way and in Bitches Brew and, you know, uh, Big Fun and uh, in concert and, and all this other stuff and live at the Fillmore and, you know, and all this, that I feel like I had a lot of catching up to do, you know, so that's what I did. And, um, 
Well, I want to get back into some more music, but I also want to hear, we could play a track first, or you could tell me, I was going to ask you about these particular musicians and how the pieces fit together and yeah. what everybody's bringing. Do you want to? Okay, yeah, I'll talk a little bit like, about that, and I'll bring out my notes here. And let me just catch you up. If you're just tuning in, my name is Mitch Goldman. This is WKCR, and uh, very happy to have Graham Haynes here as a guest for our program, Deep Focus. And we are in the WKCR archives, and we're uh, focusing on Miles Davis live recordings from 1973 to 75. And we've been in this show from Berlin from November of 73, and uh, it's it's... It's full on, and we'll be getting back to it in a bit. So, um, what's the what's the presentation? And maybe if you want to put it in the context or not, or whatever works. Of, um, I'm just thinking about what this band was coming out of, kind of the previous edition of the band. From yeah, the previous editions of of this band, I've seen videos of. Um, Actually, I actually got to see Miles also uh, during the Bitches Brew era um, when he had Wayne and Jack and Chick, I believe. And mm-hmm. I saw that band play. Dave but, uh, Holland. Dave Holland and bass, yeah. But um, this, this band is... Um, it's, it's a development from... You know, after the uh, um, Big Fun era, uh, I think Michael Henderson was probably the first one that he pulled into the band, and then Michael was playing with him for a while. I mean, you know, um, I'm I'm just talking off the top of my head because I don't know 100. percent He that's a huge change from Dave yeah, Holland. That's, yeah, that's to a major that's a major major change. But there were some other bass players in between. Um, there are some others in between. Uh, there's some videos with him, with um, with some other ba- bass players, and I can't remember. Uh, but yeah, the bringing in of Michael Henderson totally changed the whole thing because Michael Henderson was from the whole Detroit Motown, yeah, funk, yeah, right. He's so, actually. Not as many as James Jamerson, but he's on a lot of hit records. Out well, of Jameson was his teacher, someone told me, or yeah. I read somewhere. And you could hear that. You could yeah. hear that in his playing. He plays like Jameson, but he's got all this other stuff. Yeah. You know, but you can hear the Jamerson-ness in his playing. You yeah. Know? And uh, he actually went on to become a vocalist. I mean, he made a big hit as a singer uh, with You Are My Starship and all the Norman Connor stuff. But I think he was the first one to 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 change the previous band that was coming out of um, Big Fun. Um, Al Foster, I'm not sure when Al came into the band, but Al Foster definitely holds the groove down. You know, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. But you know, then I Al just... has all this other stuff that, as we know, as a jazz player, that he does. So. You know. I just remembered a story that I heard that Michael Henderson had been playing with Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Uh, and that Miles went up to Stevie. Right. I think it was in Boston. And he said, 
I'm taking your bass player. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's there's a story that 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 Miles stole Michael Henderson from from Stevie Wonder. At least he um, told him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If yeah, if if that's true, but um, yeah. So that's that's a much different sensibility than 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 uh, than you know Dave Holland or or, or yeah. Ron or any yeah. other more um, anybody who's coming out of an playing upright, playing more jazz, traditional kind of focus. Yeah, and then they're the two good guitar players. Now, I'm trying to remember if when I first saw Miles, whether he had three guitar players or not, because there was another guitar player. But the two that we know that are on these recordings are Pete Cozy, who, as I understand, is from Chicago and worked with... Um, some of the blues players from Chicago, including Marty Waters. Um, I believe, if I'm not wrong, he's on the Electric Mud record. I, that sounds right. I, wanna, I may be totally wrong. I, I have an association with Curtis Mayfield, too. Did he do some of that stuff? I don't know. I you know, there are people that. who probably know. I'm sure. Then that maybe they'll call up, you know. But um, there's Pete. I mean, Pete. You know, when I listen to him play, there are a lot of things that remind me of Chirac. Yes. But then there's a whole lot of other stuff, too. <laughs> you know, and then there's the percussion and other instruments that he plays that brought, you know, I mean, that changed, that also changed the sound of the band. He had this um, rhythm box, which was one of the first uh, drum machines that he used with that band. And... I just saw, you know, I don't know if anyone knows this. There was an exhibition. There's an exhibition going around called We Want Miles that was in Paris for a while. And it was at the Modern Museum of Modern Art in Montreal. I saw it in Montreal. And a lot of artifacts. It's a very, very interesting show, uh, this exhibition. But one of the things they have in the exhibition is Pete Cozy's synthesizer, which was... A, a freestanding portable synthesizer in a suitcase. It looked like a suitcase. You'd open it up, and there was a patch bank. There'd be a mm -hmm. patch bank right. there. Yeah, and, this is and, obviously analog. And yeah, this is analog. So, you know, he had all these instruments and colors and all this, um, percussion. There's one track where it sounds like he's playing a zither. You know, I think he played a zither. He played all these really crazy instruments. He ran his guitar through a Leslie speaker, you know, so he had his own thing going on. Then Reggie Lucas, who I guess is mostly playing rhythm, I guess you could say Reggie Lucas is the rhythm player and Cozy is kind of the colorist guitarist. And then at one point, I think he had, I think Miles had like a real uh, lead guitar player. But um, Reggie's playing was really the function of the rhythm guitar but what Reggie brings to the band is all this harmonic movement because all, a lot of these pieces are vamps, but Reggie's moving the harmonies around much in the same way that McCoy Tyner was moving the harmonies around with John Coltrane. I mean, he's, he's moving. He's moving chromatically. He's moving, you know, in, in, in seconds or thirds, and he, he's keeping the harmony open, you know, and... Um, Miles kind of takes this role over on the organ when he starts playing organ with the band, then he starts doing that, 
She keeps the harmony open by playing these uh, sus chords or major chords and moving them around so that even though you're playing in one key, there's enough movement going around that it doesn't get stale in one key. So um, that's Reggie Lucas. Um, you know, I mean, that's one of his roles, but, you know, he's, 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 his role is basically his rhythm guitar. You don't hear him taking too many solos in the band, but... Um, um, yeah, when I first saw the band, it was Dave Liebman, but I remember a couple other saxophone players coming in after that, but Liebman was with that band, I think, for a while. I think he started with Miles in 72 or sometime around there, and he is Miles, you know, front line, right hand, you know, like Miles was playing his thing, but then when he needed it to open up and and get more fluid and more, you know, kind of, I don't know, uh, longer phrases, longer lines, more intricate lines, more than, you know, Dave Liebman was his man for that period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay, so who else... Um, well, you didn't talk too much about Al Foster. Al Foster. Well, Al Foster, you know, it's really funny. When I, from seeing this band, I've seen this band, I, I, I'd seen the band for three years, and I didn't know that Al Foster was a jazz drummer. You know, I didn't figure that out until many years later, until I, when I started seeing him on records playing jazz with other people. I thought that was what he did. You know, <laughs> it was like, played grooves and stuff but um you know i guess this is probably his uh his well-roundedness and his jazz background gave him the ability to play these grooves but also you know turn phrases around and play in different time signatures and do other things with it instead of just play the groove because the thing about this music that's interesting is it's vamping you know, there are vamps that they play for a while. Inside of the vamps, Miles changes things. He's changing dynamics. He's stopping the band. He's conducting the band. That was the thing that I also noticed when I saw Miles. He was conducting the band. You know, he'd bring people in and out and change the dynamics and do all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, Al, you know, the the... The, what I would call the core of the rhythm section would be Michael, Al, and Reggie. They would be playing these vamps, but the way they played the vamps were, there was always movement happening. So you could say, okay, well, this is the vamp. You know, any other band, it would really, it would, it might sound corny, you know, because yeah, you're just playing a vamp and you're just staying in that vamp. Yeah, there's, there's not, not, there's not a lot of form there. Right. No, if there's not much paper, form. There. But they're creating the form by changing these vamps, by by embellishing on these vamps. You know, so they're they're creating a form. So. And uh, I think the one guy you didn't mention was M. Tume. M. Tume. M. Tume. I remember when when I met Miles and when my mom took me to see him, he introduced us to him too. I guess he wanted us to meet him, you know. Miles introduced you to yeah. him too. 
And I believe Mtume was his right hand. Mtume was his confidant in the band. You know, they would talk a lot about music and politics and where they thought the music should go. And uh, actually, I talk a lot with Adam Rudolph about this because Adam is close with Mtume. And uh, he tells me the things that they were working on. I mean, Miles had specific ideas about what he wanted to do in the music, what, what, where he was trying to go musically, and Mtume was uh, one of the was his uh, his general. You know, mm-hmm. like, this is how we're gonna get there. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, but Mtume, <clears throat> Mtume is playing as a percussionist. There, um, I'd have to say that. Um, his role in that band was really to dialogue with everybody. Um, he played his percussion, not, he wasn't keeping any beats. He wasn't playing any beats. He was, he was, he was kind of talking with the drums and dialoguing with miles and dialoguing with everybody. And he was, he was, uh, his role was not that of a timekeeper. You know, it was it was a different it was a different role. And uh, when Miles would bring the band down, he would always feature him too many. He featured him too many a lot. You know, in in the end of tunes or segues between tunes, he'd get long solos. He was one of the few guys that would get in the rhythm section that would get a solo. I never saw Michael Henderson take a solo in the band. Yeah, Michael never took a solo with the band. Al might have played for some bars, but he have never had like a long extended solo, but Mtume would solo in the band. So. And you mentioned that Michael Henderson became a pop star in his own name yeah. later, and Mtume and, and Reggie M-tume. Lucas. And Mtume and Reggie Lucas. Reggie Lucas we know because he wrote hits for Madonna. He and produced, made that old first produced, album, I think, right? Yeah, Didn't he? yeah he wrote and produced uh, some of Madonna's earlier stuff. Mtume had a band that was a funk pop band and uh, the hit Juicy Fruit was you know was made by him I mean people that know funk music know who he is you know it's interesting you can't really not see the pattern that we talk about that previous band you mentioned seeing Miles with Wayne Shorter who's sort of in a separate category because he was a holdover from a previous era but uh, Dave Holland Chick Corea um, Jack DeJohnette all became and are big stars in the jazz world. And then here's this new edition of the band and all these guys have this big exposure in the pop world. But mm. there's that doesn't sound like a coincidence, you know? But, and, but when you listen to this music, there's nothing really poppy about it. No, no, no. My feeling is that this band, what Miles was doing with this band, and it's pretty obvious and he talks about it in his book, um, was Miles was really trying to reach a black audience with this band. That's what he wanted to do. Um, and if you listen to the, if you listen to these recordings, it reminds me of Fela. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a very African sensibility, and I think because of that. A lot of people didn't understand it, and a lot of critics didn't understand it because they, all of a sudden, they didn't hear any harmonies, they didn't hear arrangements, they didn't hear uh, 
impeccable, you know, like arrangements and, and, and head heads and, you know, all these things. And, you know, they didn't hear that. And Miles wasn't trying to go there. Miles was trying to go somewhere else. Miles had an idea about trying to reach a black audience. And this is who he assembled to do it. And, you know, um, Miles did it his way. And I think it was a very organic approach. Um, he could have, he could have assembled a bunch of guys, you know, from pop and you know like funk bands and pop bands and 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 and, and arranged and done all this pre-production and all this stuff. But he didn't right. do that. He got guys. Later, he sort of did in that. later. Yeah, later After, he sort of when he came back in the eighties. Yeah, later, yeah, yeah, later he sort of did, but the mu- music had changed, and the world this, has changed. The world has had changed, and to me, this band is very much about this period. It's coming out of the early seventies and going into the mid seventies. So Miles knew the sound of that time. Every you know, the, the interesting about thing about Miles is that every band that you hear of his pretty much is representative of that time in its way, you know, but in a very organic way. There are probably some listeners who were listening a couple of months back when Vernon Reed was here and we were talking about Weather Report, and I heard that show. If you remember, Vernon was talking about it was this exact same period of time about all the overflow and crossover that was happening in different musical worlds at that time, and nothing sounded like Miles. But a lot of things, there was a lot of different music, some of which you might hear on the radio and some you didn't, where there was improvisation, where there were different rhythms going on, where there was uh, people were feeding off of these ideas, and maybe Miles was feeding off of some of them. Yeah. And like a, in and Vernon <laughs> and I started rattling off names of some of these bands, and it, it stretched into some far corners hmm. of the world at that time and it's exactly what you're saying that it was it was the zeitgeist it was what was happening definitely definitely and miles you know what he didn't know he surrounded himself with people that knew what was happening you know and at that time um yeah there was there was a bunch of stuff happening <laughs> should we go back to berlin yeah let's um let's let's play let's take take it over from no, wait a minute. Let's go back. Okay. Let's go back. Let's go back to Shinjuku. All right. Tell them what we're going to hear. Okay, this concert is from June 19th of 1973. So we're going back earlier from what we previously listened to. Same band, Dave Lehman, soprano, and soprano tenor flute, Pete Cozy, guitar and percussion, Reggie Lucas, guitar. Michael Henderson bass, Al Foster drums, and James M. Tume Foreman on congas. Um, this is in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. You are listening to WKCR FM New York. My name is Mitch Goldman. Graham Haynes is our guest tonight, and we are listening to some really astonishing live recordings of Miles Davis, 1973 to 75, from the KCR archives, which are largely unheard. This is not something that you're going to find for sale nearby. It's uh, This is the real stuff from from various radio station recordings and things that we've collected over the years. So let's go to Shinjuku. Mm-hmm. 
June of 73 with Miles Davis.
is a live recording, and I'm willing to bet you, I'm going to bet you money, you've never heard that recording. This is from the WKCR Archives, unreleased live recordings of Miles Davis tonight on this program, Deep Focus. Graham Haynes is our guest, and we are exploring the years 1973 through 75, a, a high watermark for music in my book, listening to this, but maybe not in... The minds of a lot of people who profess love for Miles Davis. Graham Haynes, what do you think? Uh, do you think that's Do you think that's accurate? And if so, why? Um, first, you want to go real quick. Which one was that? That was that we were in. Um, that was uh, Japan. That was Japan, nineteen seventy-three. June nineteen seventy-three yeah, in Japan. Yeah. Um, okay. To answer your question about uh, if if this. If this, my, my opinion is that um, in general, this whole era of electric Miles Davis, it took people a long time to wake up to it. And I think a lot of people who did kind of get it 
latched on to that other era we were talking about with those guys who emerged into big jazz stars and, yeah. and yeah, festival yeah, headliners I today. I agree with that. And this era, I think uh, people have a lot of misconceptions about what it is. or, or Yeah, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, those other groups were out there. I mean, Return It Forever, Mahavishnu. That's, that's the conventional uh, you know, pathway that people paint this picture like, well. And then all the other rock stuff that was out there. Right. Right, right, right. And all the, yeah, all the, uh, anything from Frank Zappa to, you know, all the things coming over from that side. And people like to paint this scenario while there was Miles, and he did his electric thing, and then those guys all went off and started all these other bands, and Herbie Hancock, and uh, Return to Forever, and Weather Report. And it's sort of true, but it's sort of leaving out a lot of other things to say that. Yeah, there were there were a lot of other things happening outside of all those Miles Davis and Miles Davis related projects. And then there's and then, this stuff, which is as we're hearing, especially live, it's it's you know dense and meaty, and it's got kind of a a dark yeah, otherworldly. Yeah, it's got a dark, and it gets darker as time goes. Yeah. As, as, yeah, as it progresses, you know, it gets a little darker as it goes on. And I think my feeling is that Miles. Knew what he wanted to do, but it took him a minute to get to where he got it, where he wanted it. Because um, my personal feeling is that Miles' laboratory was the bandstand. He didn't want to do a lot of pre-production, a lot of rehearsal, even though he did a lot of conceiving of things when he wasn't playing. But he wanted the bandstand to be the laboratory he was a player he wanted to he wanted to work things out on stage he would say to the guys i'm paying you to practice on stage um so it took him a minute it took this band a minute to get to the point where i think he was satisfied i mean i don't think he was ever really completely satisfied but um to get it to a point where it was a full-fledging entity, and they were playing uh, on the level that um, that he was satisfied with. You, I have to tell you, you changed my thinking about this. The way you kind of laid out the, the the parts that each of these guys played individually and how it came together, and it's almost it's like uh, well, you know, a lot of I thought about in in listening to this stuff today. I mean, I've heard I. I heard the band several times, uh, and I listened to the records. I listened to a lot of the Columbia records, uh, but on listening to this stuff, you know, I, it really becomes noticeable. What you know, because I haven't listened to, I haven't listened to the records of this band in a minute. It's not like I'm listening to the records all the time, but I, I did hear it live, and I did listen to the, the Columbia sessions, and now I'm listening to this, and listening to this stuff, and hearing them stretch out live. It's it's starting to reveal what roles these guys played, you know. And, and you know, it's interesting. You go to a jazz gig. I mean, even if it's a really special band, a great band, unconventional ensemble. You know, you know the role that the bass player is playing more or less, what the drummer is going to do more or less piano how these things are going to fit together yeah and these guys this is yeah no he said that. to hell with all that yeah you know yeah. miles was like to hell with all that 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 you know i mean he i mean essentially you got, you got to understand that miles said 
we got to change this back in 1969. He said that then. I remember when I saw the band, uh, the Bitches Brew Band in Central Park, which would have been 69 or 70, and I would have been like 10 years old. But the thing that I remember more than anything else is that they played straight through the whole thing. There was no stopping. There was no, okay, now we're going to play another tune. You know, now there's a solo. We're going to play the head, and then we'll play the head and then play a solo and then play the head again. There was none of that. You know, that's what I remember. That's what I came away with. But I'm listening, you know, and that's, you know, it was apparent in all the, all the, all the music that he produced from 68, 69, up until he stopped. But um, and, and also at the same time, it was certainly anything but a, you know, freeform freak out jam session. Now, see, that's the thing. That's that is the key. The the music is open, but it's not free. There's not a lot of structure, but there is structure. Um, it's. It's an open form. These are vamps. Uh, these are, you know, they're ostinatos or whatever you want to call it that they're playing over. But inside of that, Miles keep change, keeps changing things. He changes the dynamics. He brings the band out. He does a stop time thing. He does, he segues right into another piece without ending the other piece. Uh, and a lot of that stuff he was doing in the 60s. You know, but now you've got this different instrumentation. You've also, you've got... Another thing also, if I may, um, Miles, always a master orchestrator, tension and release, bringing the band up to the super pitch and then breaking it down and, you know, letting the audience breathe with the band and feeling the energy ebb and flow and and, uh, dynamics. But let me go back to what we were talking about is why people kind of slept on this period and slept on this yeah, music. I yeah. think I think um I think to a lot of people particularly critics they didn't really take seriously this band because they didn't understand it. And the reason that they didn't understand it was because it wasn't addressing all the things that they were used to hearing and wanted to hear. You know, I think they got more of that stuff with some of the other bands, Return to Forever and McLaughlin, John uh, Mahavishnu and some of those other bands where you get a lot of this kind of virtuosity and technique and you get like a lot of information and a lot of organization and clean arrangements and good intonation and all these things and miles it wasn't about any of that miles was not interested in any of that and i think because of that you know a lot of the press maybe the record company um you know miles was always getting gigs that was not yeah i mean you know he is it's all true what what you're saying but he's playing big halls he's he's Putting yeah, yeah, he had the, the gigs. Seats. Yeah, he's putting people in the seats, and because of that, he always had gigs. But I don't really feel, I don't feel like, and if you read the critiques of that time from the music press, 
they didn't really understand it. They didn't understand on the corner, and they didn't really understand anything after that. You know, um, and uh, that's pretty apparent from, from the things that I've read that I remember. I don't get the sense. And then also from the musicians as well. But, you know, we would, you wouldn't, I wouldn't expect the, the older jazz, uh, the guys that Miles played with in the 50s. And right, yeah. Who, really who was the, the cognoscenti of this new thing that he was doing? I mean, it wasn't going to be the old guard jazz people for the most part. And it, there wasn't really a new language for it, you know, or, or new media outlets to discuss it or anybody. I mean, the, the audience there got was, it. Yeah, there was, no, there, were no, there was no new media outlet for it. But I would say, you know, because I went to a lot of these gigs and I would look at the audience. I mean, Miles had the hippest audience, hippest audiences. If you wanted to see who was hip, you went to one of Miles' gigs and everybody would be there, you know. Um, um, I My feeling is that you want to expand on that a little bit? Like, who, okay, who Alex, uh, you know, I remember going to some of Miles' gigs and, you know, um, uh, seeing actors, Cicely Tyson, this is before they got married, you know, uh, um, Brock Peters. Um, then, you know, um, Probably also, I would think, visual artists and, Vis- and, yeah, and visual, fashion you know, people. Po- and, you know, pop artists and yeah. visual artists and fashion people and, you know, and pimps and hustlers, too. Yeah. You know, they would all be there. And so you would go and, and you, would, you would see this. Isn't that nice movie. that pimps and hustlers take time out from their busy day <laughs> <laughs> for a little entertainment, <laughs> cultural nourishment? Yeah, well, you know they, they they have to be cultural like that too, <laughs> you know but um you know, it was it was it was a really incredibly diverse audience you know um and um a lot of artists too you know and 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 a lot of hippies you know i you know you would expect you know if Miles was playing at the Fillmore you know that a lot of young kids would come out and, you know, who knew who these people were, you know, students, artists, aspiring artists, who know, who knows, you know. But, um, yeah, with this group, it was apparent that he, he was going after this young black audience because of what the rhythm section is doing and the intensity of the rhythm section. And I think because of this, he did not address a more kind of Western sensibility. So the media slept on it. You know, but when you listen, I was listening to, um, to one of these gigs and you hear people in the audience and they get it. You know, they're talking back when Miles is playing. They're talking back to him, you know, like he's talking to them. There's a rapport there. And that, I, I remember. I bet that's that. at 75. Yeah, maybe it's at 75. But yeah, um, yeah, 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 there is. The people got it. Yeah. But the media didn't get it. Yeah. So because the media didn't give it back, there was there was kind of a, a disconnect. And I think Miles felt that. And he, uh, 
I I think that he was pissed because the, the media didn't get it. Yeah. I think because the media didn't get it, he thought the people didn't get it people, to the extent that they could have gotten it. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I you know, um, of course he's right, but at the same time, you know, one wonders. This just doesn't sound. There is nothing that sounds really like pop music to me in this it's it's uh well in the way there is in a way there isn't i mean the 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 thing that we just the thing that we just finished playing um it starts off in a very kind of funk rock kind of vamp you know but but then they don't play any tune there's no tune there's no catchy melody there's no so in that sense this, this is not poppy in that sense you know there were no catchy melodies. If they were, they were just there for the purpose of uh, a jumping off point. And then they stayed in these vamps, but then these vamps kind of morphed into something else. You know, they always did. And then he would change and go somewhere else. I, you know, something else comes to mind. My recollection of seeing Miles play, people definitely responded to the music. People also responded to Miles' mystique. Oh, yeah. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. There were people that were there to see what he was wearing. Yeah. There were the people that came to see him turn his back to the audience. Yeah. And those that wanted to see if he was going to show up or not, or if he was going to be late or whatever the case may be. And if he ever did do anything to reveal some humanity towards another musician or yeah, in yeah, yeah. rare that, that was to the that, audience, yeah, people would, you know, they'd get a cheer if he, yeah. like... You oh, know. yeah, yeah. The, 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 the Miles' gigs were kind of uh, electric in that sense. It was the theatrical, kind of, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was definitely a theatrical moment. But then there was the music, you know. And uh, I think he was as serious about this music as he was about any of his other bands, you know, from the 50s or 60s. Something uh, you touched on. Um, did I cut you off? Were you... Uh, no, no, no. Um, the discrepancy or difference between what we're hearing in these live sets and the records he was making at that time. Yeah, yeah, there's a discrepancy. You know, in the studio, you can clean things up. Things were edited a lot, you know. And well, that's uh, an interesting whole other conversation, too, that, um, and I talked to Tio Macero, who was producing those records, who swore that they were complete assemblages that he would make Miles would stop by for five seconds and, you know, leave tapes or whatever. They'd play live and they were gone and he was left to scratch his head and mm. pull something out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that but may be true. Maybe. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's true that he said it. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's true that he said it, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> go on. Yeah, um, it's just the, the, the way the music is constructed is kind of... It's very much, it's, it's a very African, the way I, it's, it's a very African approach. Um, as we go on, we hear more of this layering that the band is doing um, that, that you can hear is happening that's definitely an African sensibility. And, um, you know, these grooves that go on are not unlike Fela, you know. But now how much of that was... Miles was getting from Fela and how much was no, Fela getting I, from Miles? I don't think Miles was really getting that much from him, but I, I I do I do know that they both got from James Brown. Right. Very you know, true. And um 
you know, but then James Brown had to come from somewhere too. So I would just put it down to uh, it, it being a trait and something that, it, that, that African music is based off of. You know, I mean, the music is not... Monday, December 5th, 2011. Graham Haynes, my guest on this deep focus on Miles Davis from the period of 1973 to 75 or thereabouts, and Graham bringing such phenomenal wisdom and insight into the way this band worked. I love this show. I've been looking forward to bringing this one to you as a podcast since I started doing these podcasts. There's a lot of shows like that. Every time, every show I revisit, I feel like, oh, this one, this one. But um, even among all of this ones, this one is this one. Um, Graham Haynes, you've heard him on Deep Focus uh, a couple of times talking about his father's music, drummer Roy Haynes. And we've got more stuff coming for you with Graham. But also I want to take a moment to encourage you to check out Graham's recordings and his various performing projects. I hope we get... Graham back on the bandstand soon. Lots of things percolating. Lots of stories. Venues opening, bands touring, and everybody is very concerned that all the audience members, potential audience members, are vaccinated. So do your best to accommodate that where you can. And hey, if you like Deep Focus, uh, I'm not asking you for any money. I'm not asking you to support our non-existent advertisers, but I will ask you to just let some folks know that you like the show. If you know some people who love this music, then definitely tell them because a lot of people, you'd be surprised. You'd think everybody knows about this show. Um, Very few people know about this show. But also, if you like us on your podcasting app, that sends a message to other people who like the things you like and tells them they might like Deep Focus. Sounds a little complicated. Give us a click, thumbs up, five stars, whatever it is, and the word will go out. And uh, I will we'll really appreciate that if you do that. All right. Hey, so that's part one. There's only two parts of this one. So don't be thrown by that. Uh, two long sessions. And uh, go and check out the other one. It's Graham Haynes on Miles Davis, 1973 to 75. And while you are looking at the Deep Focus podcast, we have over 150 episodes up now. So you can just wallow in it. You can get lost in it. And uh, I hope you're having a good time.